I was just continuing the uh, uh, chapter about the, uh, the Mechis, the nuns' community at Wat Bafong. I've been talking about um, <coughs> the first group of Mechis that were they, um, uh, they gathered together and the beginning of the Mechi section at Wat Bafong uh, and uh, started to talk about the daily routine. The news that a Mechi community had been formally established at Wat Bapong produced a steady stream of applicants. Lumpur began accepting more candidates from the growing waiting list. Initially, he kept it to a policy of taking only older women, but in 1959, another milestone was passed when Bunyu Pimwong, aged 24, and Kam Kin Prakong, aged 23, were allowed to join the community on a probationary basis. After the requisite time had passed smoothly, the two women were formally accepted as Mechis and went on to become stalwarts of the community for the next 50 years. Mechi Pim's devotion to meditation was an inspiration to the burgeoning community. Her frugality became legendary. One nun remembered that when food was scarce, she would prefer to let others have what was available well, she would simply roast sun-dried leftover rice with a little salt and eat it out of an old metal dish. When helping out with group activities, Mechi Pim's head would always be slightly bowed, maintaining sense restraint and abstaining from pointless chatter. At one time, the nuns remembered her levelling off the top of a termite mound near her kuti and surrounding it with a ring of thorny branches. She explained that she was experiencing some drowsiness in her meditation and this was to be her new meditation seat. A termite mound is not a comfortable place to, to sit. It's very prone to having the occupants moving around and um, causing itching and so forth. So that um, she was a serious meditator. So the next section is called Mechi Bunyu. So she, as you just would have heard, she was one of the uh, the new and younger arrivals. And so she was in, interviewed extensively for this book by Ajahn Jayasaro. The lives of Mechis usually take place out of the limelight, and few details of their experience and practice find their way into the public realm. Fortunately, when Mechi Bunyu passed away in 1996, a funeral volume was published. It included a short biography that offers an intriguing glimpse of an inspiring woman. Over the years, amongst the, the small group of senior Mechis that led the community, Mechi Bunyu became acknowledged as the first amongst equals. In many ways, she was an archetypal Isan woman of her generation, competent, resilient, and apparently tireless worker with a rock-solid moral core and a no-nonsense kindness. She had first shown a precocious maturity as a small child. All Isan, uh, Isan is the northeast region of Thailand. All Isan children would be expected to participate in the family work, but when her father was bedridden by a large abscess on his leg, the seven-year-old Bunyu was given the uh, onerous task of caring for him. The rest of the family were needed in the fields and she was the only available nurse. She took to it without complaint. For many months, she was her father's constant companion, cooking for him, washing his clothes, wiping him down and keeping the abscess clean. As she grew up, Bunyu was known as a gentle person who disliked conflict, but every now and again, a more resolute side of her character was revealed. 
She was renowned in the village for the time she apprehended a chicken thief by hiding in the family chicken coop and hitting him over the head with a piece of timber as hard as she could. More than once, quote-unquote, she admitted, as he made his escape. The chicken coops are not very big, so <laughs> she must have still been quite young when that, when that took place. She liked to go to Watpapong on observance day and spoke often of one day becoming a nun. In her free time, she would go to the Mechi section and help out with odd jobs or teach some of the less literate Mechis to read the chanting book. She rejected all suitors. So a suitor is someone who wants to marry you. The turning point came one day when she attended the weekly all-night practice session in the monastery with her mother. <coughs> she was feeling drowsy that night, but was shaken awake when Lumpur started to expound upon an old Isan saying, a child, this is the saying, a child is like a noose around your neck, a spouse is like rope pinning your arms behind you, wealth and possessions are like shackles around your legs. As Longpore expanded on the sufferings inherent in the household life, it was suddenly and completely clear to her. As she realized that she was still free of these traps, she breathed a sigh of relief. From that moment, her determination to become a nun became assured, and before long, she was one. Life in the monastery was not easy for young Mechi Bunyu. At first her health was poor. At one point, during a serious illness, an elder sister came to visit, and in trying to persuade her to disrobe, quoted an old saying about monastics and illness, the gist of which was that those who haven't accumulated enough merit before ordaining will not survive the rigours of monastic life. It seems, she said, that Mechi Bunyu was clearly one such person. If she didn't return to lay life, she could die. Mechi Bunyu replied that she was going to die sooner or later anyway, but, uh, wherever she lived. But whenever the day of her death did arrive, she was determined to meet it at the monastery and as a nun, which, decades later, loved and respected she did. Any questions, comments, thoughts? The... Um, uh, <coughs> The division between the monks section and the nuns section was extremely rigorously upheld in um, uh, in Wapapong, and so that um, there was a, a very uh, uh, solidly built uh, wall between the two. And uh, the, the the door between the, the 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 you went through to go from the monk section to the nun section, or vice versa, was ex both had a high step and a low lintel, so you had to both kind of step up and climb down, kind of crouch down at the same time. So Nobody could just sort of drift through accidentally. It was definitely a <laughs> you couldn't uh, heedlessly go through the, the through the door. And or, you know, if, and uh, at least in those days, it was only ever Lumpur Lumpur Cha who went over there, and it would be uh, from the monk's side to the nun's side, and be uh, uh, be for the purpose of uh, giving teachings, and. Um, that would be uh, fairly uh, regularly. The nuns would come through in the morning to um, to work in the the main monastery kitchen. They all come along in a in a neat line and come to the kitchen. And then, and then after the meal time, they, after the the, the meal time um, session, then they would all file back again um, uh, neatly. But um, that was uh, there was very very strictly controlled traffic. So things were a lot more liberal here in the, in the West ever since the early days of uh, Chitta Viveka and uh, I was talking last time about how um, it was uh, uh, Sister Rochina uh, was the, the one who sort of launched the, the nuns community in this country with that request from uh, uh, when she came to visit uh, Wat Pananachat back in uh, 
in 78. Um, and, uh, and then Lumpur Sumedha carried out the first eight precept ordination uh, at, at Chithurst. Um, it was about a week after I arrived from Thailand, so I was actually there the night that uh, the first four uh, nuns uh, took, the, and took the eight precepts. So that was um, a uh, historical evening. The nuns' community began, uh, end of October 1979. And um, so that uh, right from the beginning, there was a, a lot more interaction, and uh, also within the West, that sense of a, a rigid division and uh, no, no contact whatsoever between the, the women's community and the men's community that... Uh, that clearly wasn't sort of something that was going to be appropriate or, or um, wouldn't work within the Western context. And uh, as I was saying before, the, the, uh, when there was a uh, the question about how do we choose what to what to change, what not to change, uh, Lumpur Sumato in those days, and he also was was uh, fairly young in the training. I think people forget that when um, when he came to England, uh, he had. In in May of 1977, uh, he'd only uh, he only had ten reigns, so uh, that's uh, how many are you Tantana? Nine. Nine. So just one more one more year senior to Tantana. This young lad. So Ajahn so Sumedha wasn't a lot uh, longer in the robes than than uh, what we think of as a you know, reasonably young monk, and uh, and when Chidhast opened, you know, two years later. That was in, in June of 79. That was just before his um, 13th Vasa. So he had, 12, he had 12 reigns by that time. So again, that's not particularly senior. So um, uh, he had a lot of responsibility uh, and um, sort of uh, the um, kind of uh, important decision-making uh, put into his, his lap at that time. And also... Um, uh, in the, in the, by that time, uh, Lumpur Cha was he had been still active. He made a visit in 1979. He'd given permission f- uh, and encouraged uh, Ajahn Sumedho to give the the uh, eight precepts to the first group of women. But then, um, as things progressed and Lumpur Cha's health collapsed over the next couple of years, so by the time he got to so 82, 83, Lumpur, Lumpur Cha couldn't speak anymore. So. When uh, Lumpur Sumedha wanted to ask advice about how to develop things for the women's training, Lumpur Cha was not able to talk. He, he was paralyzed, couldn't speak. And so essentially uh, Lumpur Sumedha had to just uh, consult with uh, some other of the elders in, in Thailand and, and um, figure things out on his own. So that was... Uh, he, uh, <coughs> people would often say, well, um, what did Ajahn Chah say about the, the uh, ten precepts for the nuns? And... Well, <laughs> he was the he, he, the Lumpur Sumedha would say. Well, Lumpur Cha was conveniently uh, unable to comment, so I had to figure it out by myself. <laughs> so I think it was extremely courageous and um, and, and noble, notable that uh, Lumpur Sumedha took that step to establish the uh, the ten precept ordination uh, for women in uh, 1983, and that was you know, fairly shortly after. Um, Chithurst had uh, had begun and before Amravati began, and so that it was it was a, a courageous move. But he saw it was uh, something that was really important because, as Ajahn Jayasara was saying, you know, that there's a, a huge gulf between the the, monk, the the monk's role and the nun's role in Thailand, and and so that uh, it was it was very clear from the early days of uh, of Chithurst. Um, he did the first uh, bhikkhu ordinations in eighty one. And so then the 
<coughs> so the, the monastery had opened in June of 79 and then the, um, he, did, he was given permission to be a preceptor in 1981. They established the Sima boundary and, and so he did the first ordinations for three bhikkhu candidates in, in 1981 uh, and uh, I was there for that. So. And then uh, shortly afterwards, because then we had um, not just uh, Sister Rochna, Sister Sundara, Sister Chandasiri, Sister Tanisara, then uh, Sister Jintamani had come along by then. She was a part of the group, and there was quite a few other um, and, uh, and, uh, other women sort of um, getting ready for training or, or uh, interested in entering the training. So over um, uh, the latter part of 81 and 82, then people began to ask, well, are the are the women going to be in uh, in the kitchen for the you know, until they're in their old age, or <laughs> they're still going to be driving cars and handling money? And uh, as these young men can can go forth and uh, take up the 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 bhikkhu life, but um, what is there for the women's community? And so that um, that really hit home to to Lumpur Sumedho, and he realised, you know, this we've we've got to we've got to think seriously about this. We have to to try and work something out. So then that was uh, over that, that period of time. I was uh, from early 83, I was, um, also I was a very junior monk, so I wasn't really in on discussions, um, but I was uh, uh, up in Harnham. So I wasn't around uh, at Chittas uh, during that, that summer, but then he had been, um, you know, as I said, Lumpur Chah wasn't available for discussion. Uh, but he talked to Lumpur Jan, uh, who was extremely helpful and, and supportive, and uh, Lumpur Panyananta, uh, from, uh, who's an associate of Ajahn Buddha Dasa. He talked with uh, Sondit Buddhachan, who was one of the high-ranking monks in Bangkok, and sort of asked around and got as much, did as much consulting as he could with people he felt was, had been in the West or had um, a feeling for um, the, the needs of the community. And so then he... Uh, and talked with Sundet Nyana Sangwon. I think at uh, uh, that time he was the Sangaraja and the Abbot of Wat Bawaniwait. And so it seemed that talking with everybody that the, the best bet was to um, to aim for using the ten precept form um, and to, to, uh, to take that as a, the model, the, giving the ten precepts to the uh, women candidates who people were interested in deepening the spiritual training. And then... Uh, developing around that a set of, of protocols just like Lumpur Cha did at Wat Bapong with around the eight precepts there was a lot of uh, training rules and, and um, say principles protocols that were established for the nuns training at Wat Bapong uh, so then the uh, um, Lumpur Sumedho again in discussion with, with more of the senior people in, uh, in, uh, in England and also obviously talking with the uh, the first group of women who were the candidates saying that what uh, we, we would do would take the ten precepts as a basic form and then take time to develop a, a, a more comprehensive training around that. So the, the Sila Dara uh, precepts uh, was like a, like a seven-year evolution of going going through the the monks, uh, the Bhikkhu Padimoka, the Bhikkhuni Padimoka, the Samanera training rules, and um, crafting a code of uh, a training rules that is um, used up to this day. So that was 1983 that began. And then the uh, Amravati was opened in 1984, the following year. Lumpur um, uh, Sumato was had a lot of courageous moves in that era. <laughs> he was ready to sort of step out and, and um, to uh, say be um, taking uh, taking a lot of risks. Um, the uh, 
the the rebuilding of Chithurst, the sort of repair on the house that there hadn't even really been finished before Amarati began. Um, but anyway, he saw that there was a great need to provide uh, more of a training situation for the women's community. There's the, the nun's cottage down at Chithurst was, was very heavily over-occupied. So he needed a, a bigger place, a uh, place specifically for the training uh, for the nun's community, um, and also a place that people were very interested to have retreats, and so he wanted to have a place that we could run our own retreats. And so then in the... Um, in 1983, so the, 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 the first group of nuns uh, took the, uh, the Ten Precepts, I think in August, or end of July, uh, uh, 83, early August, um, and then they walked up to Amravati and, and began the, uh, I, think they had that, I think it was his, his birthday was the, uh, it was the first Ten Precept Ordination Day, and then they uh, arrived just in time for Second Vasa here at Amravati in uh, August the 1st, August the 2nd, something like that. So anyway, um, the, um, uh, the, the, kind of the training was, was um, sort of, uh, launched with the nuns community come, being at Amravati. They've been a year at Chidhurst and the, community, uh, the nuns community walked up in, the, in, the, in a sort of long tudong in, in relays a year later, so the first ordination was in in eighty three, and then eighty four Amravati opened, and so that was um, also the, uh, uh, the 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 one of the main motivations was to provide a better tr- living situation. So when they got here, then the nuns got the best buildings, which was the not that any of the buildings were particularly fancy, but <laughs> it was the the buildings where the the school uh, staff, the teachers and staff had had lived. And uh, the uh, Lumpur's intention was to, to set things up so that the nuns' community could uh, could have a bigger space to develop in the, the nuns' cottage. They were he used to say it was like the old woman who lived in a shoe. That nursery rhyme. There was sort of nuns in the attic, nuns in the nuns in the in the garden shed, nuns in the pigsty. It was kind of uh, it really was sort of every every nook and cranny was being occupied. And in those uh, that era, we weren't allowed to build any kutis in the forest. The, the Chichester district council was extremely uh, strict so you couldn't just you, you couldn't put you couldn't put a caravan in the forest and live in it you just uh, we had one kuti that we were allowed and otherwise uh, we just had to try and make use of the the buildings that we had so uh, that was uh, in um, August of 84 Amravati opened and that was um, uh, where the has um, been the the main center for the the nuns community since then So the next section is called Dependent Autonomy. The Mechi section of Wadbapong was completely segregated from the monks' area, as I was saying, <laughs> and surrounded by a fence. It consisted of kutis, somewhat closer together than the monks, for safety, a dhamma hall for group chanting and meditation, and a kitchen with a vegetable garden and an orchard. After the death of Mechi Pim in 1965, the day-to-day affairs of the Mechi community were left in the hands of a committee, which consisted of Mechi Bunyu, the head nun, and four other senior figures, but was ultimately under the authority of Lumpur. Once a month, Lumpur would meet with the committee. These meetings allowed him to offer its members advice and encouragement and to deal with practical matters. He would listen to the senior Mechi's questions and worries and advise on such matters as principles of leadership, how to promote harmony in the group, 
and how to encourage the, the younger nuns. Sometimes, the Mechis remembered long afterwards, he would inspire them with stories of the great bhikkhunis at the time of the Buddha. In 1964, Lumpur established a code of regulations for the Mechis. These regulations were read out to the community of Mechis after evening chanting on Upositor Day. That's the uh, fortnight new moon and the, uh, the fortnightly uh, observance day, the, um, the full moon and the new moon days. Uh, on the Upositor Day, the twice-monthly occasion on which the monks gathered for the recitation of the Patimokkha discipline. And these are the regulations of the Mechi section, Wat Nongpapong. Number one. It is forbidden at all times for Mechis to gather together in groups in order to socialize and indulge in idle conversation. That's never happened here, I'm sure. No. Two, communal activities such as eating the daily meal, washing up, sweeping, bathing, etc. should be performed in concord, in an orderly fashion and with mindfulness. Three, Mechis should keep the area surrounding their kuti clean by regularly sweeping it and keeping it free from ants and termites. Four, Mechis should be frugal in eating, rest and conversation. Mechis should not be outgoing and exuberant. Five, on receiving gifts, Mechis should share them in a just and appropriate way. Six, when a Mechi is ill, her fellow Mechis should help nurse her with loving kindness. Seven, Mechis should determine that their actions of body, speech and mind directed towards fellow Mechis, whether face-to-face -face or behind their backs, be guided by loving-kindness. 8. Mechis should pay respect to each other according to seniority. 9. Mechis should keep all their precepts purely and not make themselves objects of aversion to their fellow Mechi. 10. It is forbidden for any single nun to govern the community of Mechis or establish new regulations on her own authority and with wrong view. 11. A Mechi who is aware of a problem should quickly inform the head of the Sangha. 12. A Mechi wishing to go out of the monastery for any purpose must first inform the head of the Bhikkhu Sangha. 13. It is forbidden for a Mechi to claim rights over a Kuti whose construction she has sponsored. 14. It is forbidden for a Mechi to receive guests of the opposite sex in her Kuti except in certain cases of illness. 15. It's forbidden for a Mechi to display or promote things unconnected with Dhamma or Vinaya for the sake of gain. Such behavior is wrong livelihood and is harmful to the Buddhist religion. So that would be uh, telling fortunes or, um, or providing health uh, cures and, um, and you know, all kinds of... whole. This is a, these are very, very comparable to the, the monks' regulations. And so... Um, it's uh, very, very strict prohibitions about providing medical advice or medical treatments, uh, telling fortunes, giving lottery numbers, um, uh, and um, or it would also be things like doing, uh, creating artwork, like making Buddha images or you know, uh, kind of uh, handing out medallions, all those kind of things. Sixteen. It is forbidden for mechis to put themselves at the service of householders. To do so does harm to them. 17. Mechis should seek harmony through shared right view. They should not quarrel with others under the influence of wrong views. 18. It is forbidden for Mechis to maintain contacts with monks, novices, other Mechi or lay people, either within or outside the monastery, except for necessary reasons connected with Dhamma. 19. It is forbidden for Mechis to be involved in fundraising activities. 20. It is forbidden for any male over the age of 12 to spend the night in the Mechi section, except when unavoidable. 
Anyone, uh, 21. Anyone wishing to ordain or stay in the Menchi section must be accompanied by a guardian as a reference and have a reasonable number of sponsors. The majority of these regulations were adapted from those drawn up by Lumpur for the monks, which he in turn derived from the Vinaya training rules. They did much to, provo- to provide behavioral norms for the Menchis that, in most respects, were in line with those of the monks. A few other regulations, however, such as 13, which was forbidden for a Mechi to claim rights over a Kuti, and 19, which is forbidden for Mechis to be involved in fundraising activities, reflect the fact that Mechis, unlike monks, were not required to give up the use of money. Any particular questions, thoughts, comments on any of those? I'm wondering about the Mechis having to have a reasonable number of sponsors. Was it a slightly different system? I know, like, usually, like, a lot of the, a lot of the gains would go directly to the monks at home. Yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not absolutely sure about that, um, to be honest. Um, uh, I suspect it's a, it's a, um, because they weren't arms mendicants, they, 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 they didn't go out on the Bindabata. Mm. And so that, um, rather like what you have in, in, t- in the Tibetan system, where when someone came to a monastery, because uh, it, like at its height in Tibet, something like twenty percent of the population were in robes. So, and the the, <laughs> the availability of food was pretty pretty uh, de- uh, undependable. And so that when someone came to be uh, to be a monastic in Tibet, whether as a woman or as a man, they needed to have the the family or some sponsor would say okay here's a, here's a bag of silver this is for for you know our daughter's training and 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 should cover her for the next three years we'll come back with some more when we when when the time is right and so that you rather like a dowry almost you couldn't join a monastery without having that that kind of sponsorship because um, the, uh, the there was such a preponderance of monastics. And, and that's then the system having been set up that way, then people you know, sort of got got accustomed to that. So um, the uh, uh, but that's that's kind of that's my guess. I'm not, I'm not absolutely sure. Do you know Suvira? But uh, have you stayed? You stayed in the Mechi section at Bapong? No. Never st- scared. Oh, scared of hard work, not scared of ghosts. <laughs> the ghosts are easy, the hard work is... <laughs> Anyone stayed in the Mechi section at Bapong? No, but I have heard that they work very hard. It's, uh, it's tough. So, one thing I find very interesting is the amount of uh, care and time that Ajahn Chah obviously took with the, the women's community, which is very unusual. Yes. And, yeah. and the fact that he, he would actually meet with a, a committee of more senior Mechis to try and help them with proper leadership. Every month. So that's very, uh, very interesting. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, my experience when I was in Thailand is that the Mechis, even now, um, have quite a low status and often not very well organized mm-hmm. so they don't so often the, the, the standards are quite low 
Yeah, well, Ajahn Chah, he was extremely, well, you know, extremely kind, but also extremely practical. So it's like, oh, well, if this is going to, if this is going to work, how's it going to work? <laughs> and so he wasn't a sort of hope for the best kind of a person. He was a sort of, well, okay, let's let's think this through and let's take action to to see this is that this is carried out in a good way. So that was his his style with it, with all, everything, really, with construction, with community dynamics was establishing new monasteries so exactly the same with the women's community also when there was um, famously uh, at a certain point there was grumblings about whether there should be a, a nun's section of Wat Wapong at all they thought Lumpur was spending a lot of time uh, and a lot of time and energy uh, helping the, the nuns community and so then there was a, um, a, a bit of a, a uh, grumble fest Going on that uh, you know that uh, shouldn't really be nuns at all, and uh, this is kind of distracting them for from from uh, helping the the, the monks community, which of course is much more important. And so he had a, a, a sangha meeting for the uh, I, I guess either at Patimoka or he gathered the the, the the monks and novices together and said, uh, anyone who thinks that there shouldn't be a nuns community at Wapapong can leave. Any anybody? <laughs> <laughs> Please, uh, if you don't want to, if you don't want to be a nuns a community here, please, this is your opportunity. You can you can pay your respects and leave now. Just so that was a went in the annals. <laughs> it was absolutely uh, determined, but not just because it was his, you know his mother had been one of the initiators and and uh, uh, his mother was part of the community that was. Um, uh, a uh, one small factor in it, but you know, he genuinely uh, cared, had genuine respect for for people's practice, whether they happened to be women or men. And so, uh, and as he, you know, he when uh, when Mechi Pim, when she first came along, and he said, "Okay, you can go and stay in this." You know, it was a well known to be a haunted forest with all sorts of stories and sightings and activities. And okay, you can stay by yourself in that in, in alone in that part of the forest and. And, and see how you do. That was a major test, and then, but then seeing that she passed it. Okay, well, yeah, she's serious, and and recognizing that that seriousness and that commitment that needs to be respected. So he was he was a very he was very unusual in his um, breadth of thinking, and the, and and also how he approached you know, dharma practice and and training and what he saw as the priorities, and so that. Again, even though he was receiving some flack from certain quarters, he felt no. This just like the, the Buddha establishing the Bhikkhuni order. No, this, these these good people are very capable of of realization. They're desire, desirous of training. Okay, let's see what we what can we do to make this uh, a, a workable, you know, a working situation. And so he he put a lot of time and effort and, and energy into it. How, how much do you think that, that his decision to have a, that the, the double community at Wat Pong informed the fact that there's a double community in the West, or was that just completely organic? Um, well, it was uh, I mean, the, the very fact, say, that um, uh, Pat Stoll, as she was then, you know, she was, she was very, she was older than, than the others in the, uh, who were coming along to the Hamsi Vihara, and... Um, but she was very. She'd been a committed practicing Buddhist for a long time, and she was very keen uh, on on monastic life. And so that then, the fact that you know, she went to she went to Thailand, she she was able to visit the nun section, 
she and she met Lumpur Cha and she uh, and um, and her faith was 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 strengthened and so um, that um, it was really it was a it was an organic thing really and because the, you know Ajahn Sumedho had spent most of his time at Wat Bapong, which is a double monastery also quite a, uh, like Lumpur he was also with Lumpur Jan at Wat uh, Bung and Lumpur Jan had a very large Mechi section. Uh, so uh, Ajahn Anek at uh, Wat, uh, Wat Bhasangam also had uh, a, a, quite a number of, of nuns there. So that the, the, the people who were some of the most sort of prominent teachers and the closest uh, lo- and sort of longest, not, not just longest term, but also the most respected disciples of Lumpur Cha, most of their places were double monasteries, a women's section. And so that was kind of the model, and it was in more. Um, I mean, they wouldn't say that. I mean, I can't. I can't pretend I know the numbers, but the the fact that the the the, the sort of the the most respected and and um, prominent teachers had a, a nun section as well as a monk section in their monastery it was kind of an organic uh, process. That it was you know that when when. Uh, uh, I mean, I was, again, I wasn't around when when um, Pat Stoll came back to England and said, "Oh, Ajahn Chah said I should ask you to ordain me." <laughs> you know, it would have been nice to be a fly on the wall to, to hear the, the young Ajahn Sumedho's comment, like because that was very much in the Latdale Lumpur era. You know, whatever the Ajahn wants, that's what happens. And so it took it took a little bit of time to come together, but then during that period, then. Uh, Ajahn Chandasiri showed up, Ajahn uh, Tanisara and um, Ajahn Sundra, they all came in from different directions. And then when Chithurst began in, in June of 79, then they, they, all, they all pretty much showed up and came to live there uh, from, that, from that point. So they've been living at Chithurst June, July, August, September, and then the, the eight precept ceremony was arranged for, for October. And that was... Uh, the the fir- uh, there was there was also a bhikkhu ordination, but uh, Dr. Saratisa from the L- London Buddhist Vihara was the preceptor. That was held on a barge on the River Thames. We had a udaka sima, a water sima. I was there for that as well. That was my introduction to sangha life in England. Was climbing onto a boat on the River Thames for an ordination ceremony led by a Sri Lankan monk. But, okay, well, you know, I was kind of climbing the walls of my kuti in in uh, in Royette, sort of desperate for you know watching the lizards and. The, and the, and the village dogs kind of just for just something to be paying attention to well, you know, eager for some kind of variety and then you know, next thing I know I'm sitting on a boat on the River Thames in the middle of an ordination ceremony and then, oh, well. and then in a, Victoria, a crumbling Victorian mansion out of a, some sort of H.P. Lovecraft story <laughs> <laughs> with a, a, a nun's ordination the next day because like, there was one day after the other like, they had the, the the Upasampadar on the boat on the Thames, I think on the 20, 28th, and then the, the eight precept um, ceremony for the four nuns on the on the 29th. I think it was, they were just side by side. Okay, well, you wanted variety. <laughs> uh, both my parents were in hospital at that time. My, my, my father had a heart attack. My mother had an intestinal collapse. They were in different hospitals. And so that uh, there was this little voice in my mind saying, "Well, you wanted some action. <laughs> you were you were hungry for something to happen." So both parents hospitalized, and 
and so right at the, the sort of uh, launching of the the, the sangha community in uh, in the UK and this extraordinary you know, this crumbling Victorian mansion in a, and in a boat on the Thames. So, memorable early days for myself. Anyway, Noriko, you you said you stayed at uh, the Mechi section in Bapon. <laughs> kitchen was in action for 24 hours for well, I don't know how many days because they have to feed um, I don't know exactly but few hundreds of monks at least so they have been working in the kitchen 24 hours but I don't know how many so the stories are true but uh, do, do you have a sense of that, that question going back to that question about about sponsorship do you know that, that at all yeah uh, I'm not. I'm not sure, but I think if it's, if someone was absolutely impoverished, and they were very sincere that they actually had no money, or they were they were uh, pretty much orphaned, or the family was extremely poor, uh, I don't think that anybody would be refused. I think it may be also customary. What do you think? When I was in Chiang Mai two years ago, I was in the stay with the nun. And she uh, used to be a nun in Watmang Papong. Machi, basically. Mm-hmm. She was in the town Minajan Shah training. Mm-hmm. She told me the story. Uh, when she entered, she was in Shonwiri, owning her business. And, thing, and she wanted to be a Machi. She had to find a reference. Someone, I can't remember exactly, but it's like quite a high authority in the province that because Ajahn Chah need a reference. He, he actually do care about who actually enter mm-hmm. to be the Mashi. I think that that is a big thing for Thailand. You know, normally you just go to the monastery mm-hmm. and say, I want to be Mashi. And then... So I that's someone who would vouch for you, like this is a good candidate. Yeah. This person is, yes. is so responsible and yes. has got uh, yes. a and good background. Because in Thailand, like if you ill or something, hospital is not free. That time, I think otherwise put the load to the responsibility to the sangha. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I think it's in that case for me. It's not like a food or something, and a traveling or something like that. I think it had to be someone be able to cover all that cost. So, uh, so a company, a guardian, as a reference and a reasonable number of sponsors. So the sponsor isn't financial sponsoring. If say that this person has got a, a a good intention and that they sincerely want to practice. I think that yeah. part is like that is another part of responsible for this person to make sure this person is reliable or is mm-hmm. a good person. But I think it's like not very clear, but mm-hmm. it's like covering the whole thing. I think. And then she was talking about the training. Yeah, she said it was really, really straight. But for me, this is completely my opinion. I look at her, she quite, I think in age 60 now or something. And she quite attached to that time when Ajahn Lumpusha around there. So, and then, <laughs> yeah, when yeah. Lumpusha passed away, the nuns reducing by half. Oh. Remember the, the Meshi reducing the community. And mm-hmm. which is, because it wasn't the same, the attention that they all got from Lopoleum. Mm-hmm. And they kind of, 
yet still look like that. They were attached. Even now, though, she stayed on her own very much, no one around, but in the monastery with the monks. And she was still missing that part of, you know, it's strict training, you know, but you, you can't get anywhere in Thailand anymore. <laughs> so, but, yeah, it is a good and a bad thing to have that tension. So, Tana, your sister's a Mechi. So, um, did she have to have uh, some kind of a sponsor before joining her wife? Uh -huh. yeah, her, her finger get like a, have to papaya. Oh, grating uh, the papaya. Yes, all day. Too much dang mahong. Eh? Yeah, work hard. Uh -huh. So how long has she been a Mechi now? I think now four years. I haven't <laughs> something like four or mm -hmm. five years. So we don't have papaya fingers in the amongst the Anagari Cars community here. The consequences of transgressing these regulations is not made explicit. In fact, this lack of clarity is inevitable, given the rather loose terminology of some of the points. Point four, for example, which was Mechis should be frugal in eating, rest and conversation. Mechis should not be outgoing and exuberant. Uh, is more of a general exhortation against extravagant behavior rather than a rule. Seems reasonable to assume that by confining himself to a glowering transgressors will be dealt with accordingly. Lumpur sought to give himself the flexibility to deal with problems on a case by case basis, which is again very characteristic to Lumpur's style. So he was very much a case by case, he was not a systems kind of a person. He was not, uh, it was, uh, he was extremely unpredictable in how, how he would. Um, deal with any any situation he was you could never second second guess him it was always um, yeah sometimes he thought oh he's going to really come down on this person and then it would be sort of huh? Just pass off without even a, hardly any kind of acknowledgement and then something you didn't even realize somebody had done anything wrong he'd be <laughs> <laughs> what happened what happened so he he was uh, very much a case by case person for for the for the monks and, and also in relation to to lay people as well that uh, he was extraordinarily sort of intuitive and un, unsystematic, unfixed, and just sort of read, read situations, read people's characters, read uh, uh, things very intuitively, and then just, and over the years really trusted that quality of intuition and sort of responding to what uh, he felt was uh, the, the need from moment by moment and not to sort of going by the book. Is that sort of the kind of style now in, in the Ajahn Chah monasteries, or is that very specific to him? And each, each abbot is... Each abbot is different, I think. For, it was very pronounced for him. Mm. Most people are a bit more systematic. Mm. Um, not, 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 or not so rigidly so, but um, they, they tend to be sort of more by the book. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, Lumpur Chah was... was um, he he had a, but also there was this quality of even if you were surprised at the way he handled the situation 
very quickly you get in, you can see oh right that was a good idea you know, and that's how it sort of both he saw the results of his choices and other people around and that's one of the reasons why he he was so highly respected was that you know, he um, he was very strict and, and demanding in many many respects but there was also that extraordinary flexibility there was it was strict and demanding but not not rigid so it was an unusual combination and that was one of the reasons why that there was so much faith in him was that he, he gave you know really good training and really good guidance as like a kind of maestro musician. It was really, really exacting, but also um, very sensitive to time and the place and the situation. And some people try to replicate that by, you know, by sort of copying the behavior, but it's not coming from the, quite the same place. So uh, uh, generally, there's there's a bit more by by the bookishness, if that's a word. Familiar themes dominate the regulations. Harmony, order and discipline, sense restraint, mutual warmth and respect, contentment and fewness of wishes. The regulations enjoin a high standard of conduct, intimidatingly so in some areas. They played a large part in giving the Watpapong Mechis an identity as forest nuns, and in particular Watpapong forest nuns. They provided the foundation on which to base a training that gave the same importance to attention to, to attention to detail in daily life that characterized that of the monks. Sangha regulations formed the bedrock of the Watbapong culture, providing norms to which newcomers were expected to adapt. A probationary period for women aspiring to become Mechis allowed them to train by the standards that would be demanded of them at Wat as Watbapong nuns. Those unwilling or unable to live by such a code left before ordaining, thus minimizing the disruption to the community. As the majority of women who applied to become Mechis at Wabapong did so out of faith in Lung Po, there was always a possibility that some might dismiss the authority of the leaders of the Mechi community. You are not my teacher, quote unquote. The code of regulations, endorsed as it was by Lung Po himself, made the job of the senior Mechis easier. It provided ready proof that they were not bent on imposing their own will on the community, merely implementing the wishes of Lumpur and the Sangha. The next section is called Governance. Well, actually, before reading this section, going back to um, uh, Sister Nyanasiri's comment about um, when Lumpur Cha passed away, then uh, half the nuns left. It was uh, during the time of Lumpur's illness, um, before he passed away, the number of monks also radically reduced, and there was a particular time, maybe five or six years, Lumpur was paralyzed for about nine or ten years. About six or seven years into that, one time uh, when I, I was living here, um, and uh, Lumpur Sumedho had been to visit Thailand, and he came back and he, he said, uh, Wat Bapong is like a ghost town. There's, uh, he said, there's six monks living at Wat Bapong. The, the, the nuns outnumbered the monks by kind of three or four to one at that point. There were six monks living at Wapapong. So there was Lumpur, Lumpur Liam and uh, Ajahn Subin running around like a you know, chicken with his tail on fire, I think was the, was the, was the description. Yeah, Ajahn Subin is a very sort of dynamic, can do kind of a monk, but he was sort of. Uh, the, the, and there was uh, you know, uh, just uh, uh, a tiny handful. Uh, and everyone else had gone off to be different places, and so. But he said, "Yeah, Ajahn Liam was completely like, chui as they they say in the Thai language, kind of easy. Yeah, well, 
People come, people go. But, you know, we go and bind about in the morning, <laughs> try and keep the place tidy. You know, shut up the cooties that are not being used. You know, other people will come back, or they won't. So it was taking the the nursing care for Lumpur Chai was the main thing they were looking after, and then just keeping the, the routine of the monastery. But it was um, it was quite shocking to to Lumpur Sumedho. He said it was like a, like a ghost town. The place was kind of abandoned. So there was a with Lumpur's, Lumpur Chai's health collapsing, there was like a there was a uh, a lot of um, say uh, sadness and a grieving and uh, and um, and maybe not so so much a loss of faith, but people going other places to find a, a, a good practice environment or to find another teacher somewhere else. But of course, the you know, people as time went by and people came back, and then the um, the situation of Wabapong now is that it's uh, it's very full, and uh, Dan Lumpoliam has become a very highly respected and much loved teacher in in his own right. Um, I'm not sure, but how many Mechis are there in the Mechi section now? Noriko, you were... Was it, was it like a festival time that you were there? No, but I think less than 20. I think 20. 20? 20. We asked, we asked them. We went there and we interviewed them. About 20? Just before 20. So this next section is called Governance. Although he delegated the daily administration of the Mechi section to the senior Mechis, Lumpur's presence was felt strongly by everyone. The mere words, quote, I will put the matter to Lumpur, unquote, uttered by one of the senior Mechis was powerful enough to dissolve all but the most intractable of problems. Mechi Bunyu, looking back in the late 80s, said that serious conflicts in the community were rare. But when something did arise, it was always a great comfort to her to know that if the matter could not be resolved, Lumpur would be there to help her. This is Mechi Bunyu speaking. Lumpur said to me, if things get too much for the senior Mechis, if people are being difficult and stubborn, then you can come and ask for my assistance. We senior Mechis acted like elder sisters looking after their younger siblings. If someone deviated from the way of practice laid down in the regulations or from our instructions, we would admonish them. If they still didn't mend their ways after two or three warnings, then we'd have to inform Lumpur, who we relied upon as our patron and protector. And so we managed. Otherwise, we wouldn't have survived. I wasn't the only one in charge. Senior Mechi, quote-unquote, is just what people call me. I've never had absolute power. I'm not a dictator or anything like that. We have a committee of four or five Mechis, and if, some, uh, if someone is behaving badly, then it's a matter to be discussed by the whole committee. At that time, before Lumpur's illness, if we all agreed, then the matter would be taken to Lumpur. He wouldn't immediately accept our side of the story, though. He would conduct his own investigations. When Lumpur came, he wouldn't just lay down the law or take anyone's side. He would usually give a Dhamma talk in a relaxed, natural manner on a subject unconnected to the problem of the difficult nun. After he'd finished, he would drink some water and then discuss various bits of business in his easy-going way. Then out of the blue he'd say, Oh, Amechi so-and-so, how are you? How's your practice? Don't go giving headaches to the senior Mechis, will you? <laughs> Generally he spoke in a way that, quote, neither bruised the lotus nor muddied the water, unquote, which I guess is an Isan expression. Whether they were right or wrong, 
he, would, he wouldn't hurt people's feelings needlessly. But sometimes he would have to speak directly in order for people to recognize their mistakes, so that they would become more aware and amend their behavior in the future. But, as Mechi Bunyu recalled, when Lumpur was stern, it would have a considerable impact. Anyone of a sensitive disposition would still be feeling it for two or three days afterwards. Even if they hadn't been the one he told off. <laughs> that, that happens on the monk's side as well. It's like, if you were, you're kind of feeling it, you know, you got the one next to me, you know. It's still, you could feel the sort of reverberations in the system. Everybody was afraid of him. Of course, it wasn't as if Lumpur ever hit anybody or even used harsh words. But I only had to mention his name and disputes would fizzle out. If Lumpur was due to give a talk in the Mechi section while there was a problem going on with one of the Mechis, that nun would assume that I told Lumpur all about it beforehand. Her head would ache and she'd feel like she needed to go to the toilet. It's hard to say why the reaction would be as severe as that, but it was. Lumpur would be very calm and, and his discourse would be mildly spoken, but who knows why? The Mechi would be terrified. And yet if you were to ask any of the Mechis privately what they felt about him, they'd all say that Lumpur was wonderful and there was no place like Wapapong. You see? It's too subtle to put your finger on. To me, the way he ran the Mechi section was a marvel. And this next section is called <coughs> Venerable Father. And the f I'll just read the first little bit. This is called gruff. Gruff means uh, the n uh, means kind of <coughs> um, grumpy or fierce. Or du is a Thai word. Du kind of uh, fierce and forthright. So gruff is a good English word. Mechi Bunyu recalled how Lumpur could be especially gruff when Mechis asked permission to visit their family. He would say, What for? Are you homesick? How long have you been here now? The Buddha never visited his home the whole time he was searching for enlightenment. And you've only just ordained, and you want to go there already. If he gave permission, he'd say, Go empty-handed. Come back empty-handed. Don't carry a basket full there and a basket full back. On the nun's return, he would ask her, How was it? The same way you left it? Did you bring a basket full back with you? He was talking Dhamma language. He meant memories and attachments. If the nun didn't understand, she'd say, Oh, just a few onions and some garlic, Lumpur. <laughs> <laughs> We've all done that. <laughs> when he'd hold up a glass and say, This is a broken glass. I'd say, Oh, wow, I can't even see a crack. <laughs> it took me a long time to get it. <laughs> It's not the point. It's not actually broken yet. So uh, Sometimes he'd ask one of the older Mechis, how many times did you go home last night? Meaning how often did her, her mind go? If the nun didn't understand, she'd say, oh, she hadn't been at all. And he'd reply, you just didn't see it go. Ajahn Jan often acted as Lumpur's attendant on his visits to the Mechi section. This is Ajahn Jan speaking. This will be the last bit I read. Lumpur was especially careful in his relations with women. Although he'd never had the experience of running a household, he ran the monastery in an exemplary way. There were never any scandals. There were no serious disputes. He was always on his guard. 
whether through action or speech, he never gave any of the Mechis the opportunity to become close to him by any means whatsoever. Mampur upheld the eight Garudamas. When he spoke to a nun, he didn't look at her face, and he never indulged in worldly, flirtatious speech that might have led her to lose respect. More than any other group of his disciples, the Mechis tended to hold Lumpur in awe. The monks felt this awe too, and many felt it strongly, but their daily contact with Lumpur and their status as fellow monks gave it a more nuanced character. The lay disciples also felt the awe, but it was felt more intermittently, as the greater part of their daily lives was bound up with family and work. For the Mechis, Lumpur was the reason for the life they led. They looked to him as their father, their teacher, their benefactor. They saw him rarely, and then only on formal occasions, but they felt his presence everywhere. Most, moreover, took it for granted that he knew, through his psychic powers, everything that went on in their lives and their minds, although they admitted that, although they admitted wryly that, being human, this belief did not stop negative emotions flooding through them from time to time. So I'll leave it there uh, for today. Any, any questions, comments, thoughts? Yes. Yeah, I have a question. Yeah. Is it possible to meditate overnight at night with um, Maya? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a rare opportunity. Uh, so um, yeah, people are welcome to to stay in the the chapel of rest. Don't lie down. <laughs> now, if you're there, you have to do sitting or walking meditation. But. Um, People are welcome to to stay with the body, and uh, it's good contemplation for the for uh, for the individual. Also, it's it's uh, good for her, people close by.